And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Once again, it is chaos. Nothing short of chaos in Novus Ordo land. Ladies and gentlemen, greetings to you as we begin another Tratcast episode number 008 today. Glad you're listening. Lots going on, as always, lots to talk about, and so little time. <laughs> you know, we'd really publish Tratcasts more frequently, but at this point in time, it's just not possible yet. The plan is there, uh, that and a lot more, but as of right now, we just can't do it yet. Um, in fact, right now, producing a single Tratcast of, say, 45 minutes or so takes at least six to eight hours to produce if you count everything from preparation, research, putting together the script, recording time, editing, making a YouTube version, uploading, putting together the show notes, and then advertising and distributing it. All of that is just an awful lot of work. And that's fine, of course, but that explains why at this point in time, we cannot crank out more episodes faster. Okay, so this just by way of explanation. And unfortunately, we also have to be really selective um, about what we want to cover in these shows, because there's a lot we'd like to cover that because there's so much going on, by the time we get around to it, is really not that relevant anymore. Or because so many other things have happened in the meantime, big things, that we simply have to focus on those instead. All right? So speaking of big things, Francis has dropped a few bombs lately, and we'd like to talk about some of these in this episode. And um, as always, you can find all news stories, all links, all content that we mention here, um, in the show notes for this episode at tradcast.org. Okay, just look for episode number 008. So in this first segment, let's first take a look at the big story that everyone's been talking about, and that is, of course, Francis's decrees allowing for simpler and faster marriage annulments. We've called them drive-through annulments because that's really what they are. On September 8th, Francis released two so-called apostolic letters motu proprio. That means they were issued simply on his own initiative, and he himself signed them. They are called Mitis et Misericordes Jesus and Mitis Judex Dominus Jesus. 
They are both essentially identical in content, the difference being only that the former was issued for the Eastern churches and the latter for the Latin churches. In other words, one document each for both the Eastern and Western wings of the modernist sect in communion with Francis. So since both wings have their own canon law, and since he's changing canon law here, he issued two separate documents, but essentially with the same changes. What are these changes? Well, here are the major ones in a nutshell. Number one, the process will be free of charge from now on. Okay, the diocese has to carry the costs, and uh, that can be helped out by local bishops' conferences. Okay, now that's always important because, you know, if you have marital issues going on, you want everybody else paying for them, right? So uh, that's definitely important. Then another change is that one single sentence of nullity or, or validity, whichever, uh, one single sentence now suffices. There is no more automatic appeal of that sentence, although a manual appeal is still possible. Then if one party fails to show up after being summoned twice, that is now taken as consent that the annulment process should move forward. Okay, so just make sure your spouse doesn't show up. Uh, then we have, oh yeah, the first appeal, if an appeal is made, is to remain on the local level, that is on the metropolitan level. So you uh, could appeal to the, essentially to the nearest archdiocese, okay, for a review. Then a second appeal can be made to the Vatican. Then there needs to be only one single judge under the local bishop. And even the bishop alone can himself be the judge, bypassing the normal process of the tribunal under certain conditions. So picture Blaise Supic issuing marriage annulments, okay? Yeah, not a pretty picture. Then abortion is now grounds for annulment as well as brevity of conjugal life. And these reforms are going to take effect on December 8th of this year, which is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary and also the first day of the Holy Year of Mercy. Okay, so it's a slap in the face of the Blessed Mother. Now, as has come to light now, Francis put together this annulment reform without the knowledge of the Vatican curial dicasteries that would normally be involved in any such change to church law. The prelates there in the Vatican are furious at Francis over this, not simply because they were neither consulted nor informed ahead of time about this. Well, some of them actually were informed, um, but also because Francis's annulment reform is making marriage annulments so easy now that one simply has to speak now of a quote-unquote Catholic divorce. Now, mind you, Novus Ordo marriage annulments have always been fairly easy to obtain. And by this, I don't mean the process itself necessarily, which can take a long time, but it is simply a fact that since Vatican II, the number of annulments granted has been so high that even before Francis's liberalizing reforms, one could already speak of the Novus Ordo way of getting a divorce. Almost no one gets denied. Just so you get an idea of what we're talking about, in 1968, that's roughly two years after the Second Vatican Council ended, 
there were 338 marriage annulments in the United States. 338. 30 years later, in 1998, there were approximately 50,000. That's an increase of 14,793%. You can find these statistics and a lot more in Kenneth Jones's book, Index of Leading Catholic Indicators. It's a bit dated now, I think from uh, 2002, but it's recently been reprinted, so we have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. So that was in 1998. Can you imagine what the annulment figures must be today, not only in the United States, but throughout the globe? The fact is that the Vatican II Church has been handing out annulments like candy all along. And now Francis comes in and says, essentially, that we just don't have enough annulments yet. Let's make this process easier and faster. And uh, to do it, he appointed a commission to draft new legislation that changes church law on this. And these people, we have now come to find out, had been ordered to keep silent. So this would be kept from the curial prelates in the Vatican who would otherwise have made a stink about it. We've found out that in particular, it was Cardinal, quote-unquote, Gerhard Ludwig Müller, the head of the so-called Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the Novus Ordo version of the Holy Office, that uh, Müller in particular is furious about this, and that a dossier, a report of several pages, has been circulated in the Vatican among various prelates of the Roman Curia that contains a list of accusations against Francis with regard to the new marriage annulment legislation, and perhaps even more. This was reported by Julius Müller-Meiningen of the German newspaper Die Zeit, who has a copy of the dossier. We have an exclusive full translation up of this explosive article on our blog. You can find the link to it at the Tradcast homepage. The title of the article is Revolt Against Francis. Now, this is huge because, as is evident from the article, there are hints of a potential schism being given by Francis's critics in the Vatican. We've been saying for over a year now that there will probably eventually be a formal schism perhaps at the Senate, because Francis is pushing the envelope so much that someone is going to blow a fuse here before long. All that it'll take is for a number of the conservative modernists in the Vatican to say, look, the situation really can't get any worse. Anything, even a schism, would be a step up because this can't continue. And that would be sufficient justification for them to act against Bergoglio in whatever manner. Now, the article by Müller-Meiningen even says, quote, Some prelates even feel physical aggression coming up against the pontiff, and they're even willing to say so under cover of anonymity. Unquote. What's curious is that this sentence has since been removed from the original article without explanation or even acknowledgement. This is going to get interesting, folks. Get the popcorn out. Anyway, yes, I said conservative modernists, because you have to always remember that these people who are now being cheered in the blogosphere as great conservatives are really nothing of the sort. 
Okay, Take Cardinal Muller, for example. The man is an outright heretic, a modernist. The man denies the dogma of the resurrection of Christ. He denies the dogma of transubstantiation. And he denies the dogma of the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. See, just because he doesn't like adultery doesn't make him a Catholic. You know, to be a Catholic, you must believe everything the church teaches, not just one thing. People tend to forget that. In fact, Francis is a much lesser threat to souls than people like Cardinal Muller are, because Francis is quite open about his modernism, whereas Muller camouflages it. And yes, we can prove that Muller denies these dogmas we just mentioned, and we have already done so. So by the time you listen to this, we'll have the links up on our show page where you can verify this for yourself. So Muller is no great conservative. He's not a Catholic, and he's definitely no guardian or defender of the truth. He's just a modernist who doesn't think that Francis's practical sanction of adultery is a good idea. But again, that doesn't make him a Catholic. Now, we need to say something here about these new grounds for annulment that Francis has introduced, or at least officially grounds for getting an annulment process started. <laughs> good luck finding a bishop who'll deny any of them. There's a lot we could get into here. But let's focus on just one of them, one that is particularly outrageous. Procured abortion to prevent procreation. It's incredible. Francis is saying that if the wife has an abortion, this is now sufficient grounds to question the validity of the marriage. Now, please don't misunderstand. Abortion, of course, is murder. And it is absolutely reprehensible to commit an abortion or to consent to it or to participate in it in any way. But that has nothing to do with the validity of a marriage. Of course, it's horrific to find out that your wife has just killed your child. But that doesn't make her not your wife. Of course, people will say, Hey, the primary purpose of marriage is procreation, and by committing an abortion, she's showing that she does not want to procreate. Oh yes, she may very well be showing that. <sighs> there are also plenty of other ways to show that, by the way, and most couples in a valid marriage in the Novus Order are guilty of that. But for marital validity, the intent to procreate must be present at the time of the marriage vow. You can't revoke it later and then have it conveniently and retroactively invalidate your marriage. If that were the case, then to get an annulment, all you'd have to do, regardless of whether you're the husband or the wife, is say, meh, I don't want to have any more children. That's it. I've had enough. And boom, marriage is invalid. Go right ahead and find yourself a new sweetheart. Great. The way it works in true Catholicism, though, is that if one of the spouses truly did not have the intent to procreate at all at the time of the marriage vow, then he or she has to prove that in an annulment trial. You can't just assert it and then require others to disprove it. Just like with any other sacrament, the presumption is that the minister of the sacrament intends to do what the church does 
And in the case of matrimony, the minister is both of the spouses who confer the sacrament on each other. They too are presumed to be intending to do what the church does, even if they do not exactly know what that is, or even if they don't really believe it, unless the contrary is manifest. Of course, we all know that this whole Novus Ordo annulment circus is nothing but a sneaky way to legitimize divorce. It's a sneaky way to legitimize divorce and adultery camouflaged by a lot of sophistical, canonical language and a lot of bureaucracy. Novus Ordo annulments, whether with or without Francis's reforms, have virtually nothing to do with sincerely and objectively discerning whether what appeared to be a marriage actually was none. We are simply talking about Novus Ordo-sanctioned divorce and remarriage here. It's adultery with a smiley face. 98% of the time, that's what it is. So we suggest then a revised version of the Novus Ordo marriage vow as follows. Listen closely. I take you to be my lawfully wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until we get an annulment. Now, Francis being the sly modernist that he is, only two days after opening the floodgates for more annulments, played the other side by lamenting that the family is under attack. Can you believe it? The family is under attack? <laughs> How is that possible? The family is under attack. Yeah, Francis, and you're the attacker. You're one of them. There's a news article we're linking to from Catholic News Agency entitled Marriage Between a Man and a Woman is Under Attack, Pope Francis says. On September 10th, Francis addressed an international group called Equipe Notre Dame, Teams of Our Lady, which was established in 1947 to help married couples achieve holiness. Now, what Francis did there is a typical modernist tactic. In your actions, do everything you can to undermine and destroy marriage, and then at your next best opportunity, put out some crocodile tears and lament how much marriage is under attack. And sure enough, Michael Voris's organization, Church Militant, which we have appropriately nicknamed Church Disneyland, they picked right up on this and published an article with a headline of Pope, Marriage is for Procreation. Yeah, well, except that that isn't really what he said or focused on. The exact quote from Francis from his speech to this uh, marital group is this, quote, The family, as God wants it, composed of a man and a woman for the good of the spouses and also the generation and education of children, is deformed by powerful contrary projects supported by ideological colonization, unquote. So yes, he mentions procreation, but only after the good of the spouses, which is an inversion of the traditional Catholic teaching, which insisted that procreation is the primary end and the good of the spouses only the secondary end, subordinated to the primary end. 
Vatican II made both of them equal, with neither subordinated to the other, and now Bergoglio has even reversed the order. This change by Vatican II, by the way, was noted by Father Ludwig Ott in his 1967 edition of his famous manual Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, and it's curious that he was at a loss to explain it. He simply noted the contradiction to the previous teaching and left it at that. Now, this 1967 post-Vatican II edition of Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma hasn't been translated into English, but just for the sake of giving the proper references, you can see this in the 11th edition, that's the 2005 edition, in the original German on page 627. I think that's still in print, and if it is, we'll put the link up on tradcast.org so people who read German and are interested in verifying this for themselves can do so. The traditional Catholic teaching, on the contrary, was stated by the Holy Office in response to a question concerning this on March 29, 1944. And remember that uh, the, in, in, in the Catholic Church, the head of the Holy Office is not the prefect, but the Pope himself. Okay, So we're now going to quote, this is kind of a lengthy quote, but this is what the Holy Office said in response to a question about this, March 29th, 1944. And we're at the end of the quote, we're going to give you the reference. Quote, Certain publications concerning the purposes of matrimony and their interrelationship and order have come forth within these last years, which either assert that the primary purpose of matrimony is not the generation of offspring, or that the secondary purposes are not subordinate to the primary purpose, but are independent of it. In these works, different primary purposes of marriage are designated by other writers, as, for example, the complement and personal perfection of the spouses through a complete mutual participation in life and action, mutual love and union of spouses to be nurtured and perfected by the psychic and bodily surrender of one's own person, and many other such things. In the same writings, a sense is sometimes attributed to words in the current documents of the Church, as, for example, primary, secondary purpose, which does not agree with these words according to the common usage by theologians. This revolutionary way of thinking and speaking, note, they said revolutionary, aims to foster errors and uncertainties, to avoid which the most eminent and very reverend fathers of this supreme sacred congregation, charged with the guarding of matters of faith and morals, in a plenary session on Wednesday, the 28th of March, 1944, when the question was proposed to them whether the opinion of certain recent persons can be admitted who either deny that the primary purpose of matrimony is the generation and raising of offspring or teach that the secondary purposes are not essentially subordinate to the primary purpose but are equally first and independent, have decreed that the answer must be in the negative. Unquote. You can find that in the uh, compendium called Denzinger, The Sources of Catholic Dogma, the famous 1954 edition. It is there as Denzinger number 2295. 
that is actually available in full on uh, online, and we'll have a link to that. And in the Novus Ordo version of Denzinger, which there was a new uh, edition released a few years ago, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, the numbering is different there, and you can find it there as Denzinger 3838. So this was the Holy Office under Pope Pius Twelfth regarding the primary end of matrimony. It is procreation. It is the generation and education of children, and that alone is the first, the primary purpose, nothing else. So there you have it. But what does church militant do in the face of Francis's twisting of the ends of marriage? They title their story, Pope, Marriage is for Procreation. You know, that's the same Pope who told us not to breed like rabbits, right? And you know, the funny thing is that in the entire article put out by church militant, there is no mention of procreation other than that little mention there describing the family. Other than that, Francis didn't speak about procreation at all. But you couldn't guess it from the headline, could you? See, this is why we call them Church Disneyland. Trapcast. All right, time to move on to another issue. Francis and the Society of St. Pius X, or SSPX for short. As part of his Jubilee Year of Mercy, which starts on December 8th of this year and ends on November 20th, 2016, Francis has decided to show some mercy to the SSPX by decreeing that during the Holy Year of Mercy, and only during that one-year period, he is granting ordinary jurisdiction to all priests and bishops in the SSPX so they can licitly hear confessions and grant absolution validly. We'll put the link to that story on the show page also. Now, for those of our listeners who may need a refresher here, remember that it is Catholic teaching, per the Council of Trent, that a priest must have jurisdiction to be able to forgive sins in confession. This is because the priest is a judge who pronounces sentence, and a sentence can only validly be pronounced on someone who is a subject. And he is a subject only if the priest has jurisdiction over him. Now, we're not going to get into all the ins and outs of ordinary jurisdiction, delegated jurisdiction, and supply jurisdiction during a lengthy period of sede vacante, when there is no authority to grant jurisdiction, we just want to point out that under no circumstance can one claim that the church supplies jurisdiction when one is operating not simply without the authorization of the pope or the local bishop, because they're absent, but specifically against such authorization, as is the case with the SSPX and the Novus Ordo Church, because the SSPX, of course, believe that the local diocesan modernist bishop is the true and valid and legitimate Catholic authority. And they also believe, of course, that Francis is a true and valid pope. So what the SSPX has been doing from the start is they've simply been ignoring the fact that they don't have jurisdiction and have just been hearing confessions and giving absolution anyway. And they've done this for decades, so it's nothing new. 
So with this background, Francis's gesture of granting them jurisdiction is really curious because the SSPX simply does not care whether he gives them jurisdiction or not. They're hearing confessions either way, and people are confessing to them either way, with or without Francis's approval. That is the reality. Now, John Venere's reaction to this, he's the editor of Catholic Family News, John Venere's reaction to this was priceless, and it really underscores what we're saying here. In two words, he essentially said, yeah, whatever. He wrote a very short reaction to it uh, on his blog, and we're going to link to that, but that is basically what he was saying. Francis grants jurisdiction to the SSPX. Venere says, eh, whatever. Uh, then came a reaction from Louis Varecchio. Now, his reaction was complete and utter spin. He tried to dig into Francis's words and find in them a blanket validation of all SSPX confessions from the beginning up until now and beyond. Varecchio's take was manifestly absurd and is a prime example of spinning words into something they clearly do not say, do not imply, and do not mean. So we're linking to that as well. Just be careful. There's a lot of spinning going on, okay? Oh, uh, then the SSPX's United States District. That was interesting. They put up a reaction to it at sspx.org, and they published uh, their reaction with a headline so misleading as to warrant the accusation of being simply a lie. You can verify this for yourself. The title of their post reads, quote, Pope Francis, SSPX Confessions Valid and Licit, unquote. Sorry, but that's simply not what he said. Okay. Then we got the official reaction from the SSPX World Headquarters in Menzingen, Switzerland. Now, this one we anticipated with great expectation because we were wondering just what they could possibly say to Francis's merciful gesture. Because, you see, on the one hand, they can't be impolite now and say, thanks, but uh, we really don't give a hoot. Uh, nor can they say, hey, thanks. So glad our absolutions are finally going to be valid since all this time they weren't. So... Just what were they going to do? Their reaction was so clever, it was masterful. They said, and I quote, The Society of St. Pius X expresses its gratitude to the Sovereign Pontiff for this fatherly gesture. In the ministry of the Sacrament of Penance, we have always relied with all certainty on the extraordinary jurisdiction conferred by the Norme Generales, the uh, general norms, of the Code of Canon Law. On the occasion of this holy year, Pope Francis wants all the faithful who wish to confess to the priests of the Society of St. Pius X to be able to do so without being worried. Unquote. Brilliant. That was a masterstroke of diplomacy and misleading the people. In a mere two sentences, they managed to thank Francis for his gesture affirmed the validity of their confessions without this gesture, and yet found a way to acknowledge the significance of this granting of ordinary jurisdiction. They simply made it a matter of pacifying the consciences of the people. 
Wow. Congratulations, Menzingen. That was brilliant. Unfortunately, it was brilliant in a diabolical sense. You cannot invoke supply jurisdiction against the express authorization of the Roman pontiff, as the Society of St. Pius X has been doing it from the beginning. Well, at least from the time they were suppressed. The church's law does not supply jurisdiction when the legitimate authority simply refuses to give you ordinary jurisdiction. That is absurd. Danger of death is different, but here we're not talking about danger of death. So, Mensingen turned this into a matter of allowing the faithful not to be worried about the validity of their confessions. That's nice, but that is a bit disingenuous, I would say, because as a former SSPX adherent myself, I can say that nobody there is worried about the validity of confessions on account of a lack of jurisdiction from the modernists in Rome or the modernists of the local diocese. They frankly don't give a flip about what Rome says or does or the diocese. So, of course, Francis knows all this about the SSPX. But he granted them this jurisdiction anyway. So what's going on here? Why did he do that? He knows they don't care. He, he knows they've been hearing confessions without his uh, jurisdiction, and they're going to continue to do so. So what's going on? No one will be going to the SSPX for confession during this Jubilee year of mercy who isn't already going now. And... If there should indeed be some who will go then, who aren't going now, well, they will certainly stop going again once this mercy period expires. So what's the point? In my opinion, Francis's gesture is simply another public relations move to sway more SSPX lay faithful, and perhaps some clerics as well, to sway them towards being more agreeable to a potential reunion with Rome. You see, they, they now have reason to be thankful to him for such a nice gesture, and they'll be tempted to look upon him more kindly because of that, especially if he announces at the end of the Holy Year of Mercy that this ordinary jurisdiction will be granted them forever, uh, indefinitely, which is very likely that that's going to happen because it's just inconceivable that he would say on November 19th in 2016 to the SSPX, Hurry up, folks. Mercy is almost over. Get your confessions in now. By midnight tomorrow, you're back in serious sin if you keep confessing here. That's just unthinkable. No, we think that this is just another attempt to get the masses who adhere to the SSPX to be friendly towards a reunion with Rome, which may very well happen in the next 15 months. And now it's definitely time for a break. The next segment will be much shorter, but still very interesting. So don't even think about going away. Tradcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tradcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. 
go to NovosOrdoWatch.org, NovosOrdoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. The following segment contains content that is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. All right, second segment. You heard it. Unfortunately, We've had to play our disclaimer again because the topic we have to talk about in this portion of the program is once again not for little ears. Homosexuality and so-called gay marriage that the Supreme Court in the United States has invalidly, of course, imposed on the people. Kim Davis, you've probably all heard about her, is the courageous clerk from the state of Kentucky who has refused, even under penalty of jail time, to sign a marriage license for a same-sex couple. Now, it's wonderful that she, that she did that, that she refused, but unfortunately, she used the wrong justification for her refusal. She was trying to play the religious liberty card, saying that she cannot sign this license because that's against her religion and she has the right to act in accordance with her religious beliefs. Now, unfortunately, that argument is never going to fly, as we have mentioned before in a prior Tradcast, because the state will essentially say that you can have whatever religion you like, but at the end of the day, you have to obey the same laws as everyone else. Well, unless you're Barack Obama. So try using the religious liberty argument sometime for not paying income tax, okay? And just let us know how that works out. Good luck. No, of course this isn't going to work. If, and notice I say if, homo perverts have a right to get married, then states have a corresponding duty to issue such a license. Imagine if you're a woman trying to get a driver's license and the clerk who's supposed to issue you one is Muslim and says, sorry, but I don't believe women should have the right to drive, so I won't give you your license. Well... No, you can see that the religious liberty argument just isn't going to work. But that really shouldn't trouble us so much because this whole topic of quote-unquote gay marriage is not per se a religious issue. You know, as though you had to be a Catholic to know that a marriage can only be between one male and one female. It is rather per se a moral issue, and all morality is necessarily a matter of the natural law, and it is for this reason that it binds all human beings equally, regardless of their religion. The natural law in a nutshell is the law that Almighty God, our Creator, has written on our hearts. It holds that our conduct must at all times be in accordance with our nature. 
and what, what is in accordance with our nature can be known by reason and by reason alone, even without divine revelation. And that is why no one needs to belong to a particular religion or hold a certain creed to know that stealing is wrong, that adultery is wrong, or that lying is wrong, for example. The natural law is the only way to keep morality objective and not make it subject to the whims of pseudo-philosophers, politicians, or false teachers. Any sort of morality other than the natural law is necessarily arbitrary. Now, we're not going to dwell on this. The idea here is not to discuss natural law, but simply to make clear that the only way to soundly and successfully argue against homosexual so-called marriage is to use the natural law argument. Two males or two females cannot be married because all marriage has as its primary end the generation of offspring procreation, as we mentioned in the last segment, right? And this end of marriage cannot be attained between people of the same sex, not simply out of circumstance, as would be the case for a heterosexual couple, for example, who has trouble conceiving, but in principle. It is impossible in principle for people of the same sex to procreate. Now, notice how significant the inversion of the ends of matrimony now becomes that we spoke about in the first segment. If the good of the spouses becomes an end just as important as procreation or if procreation can be subordinated to it, as is essentially done with contraception, then this already opens the way for gay marriage, since homoperverts can argue that the end of their union, too, is for the good of the spouses. Ah, uh, this is nasty business. Anyway, we'd like to share with you a very, very good sound clip that we took off YouTube in which Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation answers with great competence and sound philosophy an objection by a sodomite who argues that he too should have the right to file a joint tax return because otherwise it's just discrimination against him based on him being a sexual minority. Now keep in mind... Before we play the clip, keep in mind that this question and answer session took place in 2014 before the United States Supreme Court tried to impose unnatural marriage on American citizens as a matter of federal law. Oh, and one other thing before we play the clip, you will hear the word thruple used in this audio. A thruple is a couple consisting of three people rather than just two. So let's take a listen. Yeah. So, so my question, I guess it's pretty timely because April 15th is just around the corner. So my text question is really about the government's interest mm -hmm. in, in taxes. And it, sorry, the government's interest in marriage, which I think the government's pretty interested in taxes. If I'm wrong, please correct me. <laughs> uh, so They're too my, interested in taxes. That's the problem. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so my question is, if 
why should I not have the right to file a joint tax return? Why should I pay more taxes than a straight couple simply because I'm a minority? How is that not discrimination? Sure, um, and that's a fair question. What if we were to say, why should I not be able to file a joint tax return just because I'm in a thruple or a quartet? I mean, so it seems to me what you're suggesting is that we just shouldn't have the tax code recognize marriage. No. All right, so then you think that we should have same-sex marriage for same-sex couples, but would you also extend marriage equality rights to the thruple? So my question really is why should I, as a gay man, be denied the same, ta the same right to file a joint tax return right. with my potential husband that a straight couple And has? I just want to play out um, what principle you're acting on, because I, I would hope that you're not just doing special pleading, that you want protection for your rights but not for all Americans' rights. So I, I would hope that you wouldn't be saying that you want special tax treatment, but I don't care about the thruples. So I want to see what principle you're acting on. And does the principle that you're hoping to vindicate to protect your rights also extend to protect the rights of the thruple? Sure. So I'm acting on civil rights. And so the rights that are applicable to a male and female couple are applicable to a male and male couple. And that's the, my question. How is that not discrimination on the yeah, basis so I'm trying of sexual to see, orientation? Well, right. So, so, so part of the answer is that because the same-sex couple isn't a marriage. Uh, and so that we want marriage equality to treat all marital relationships in the same way. And given the understanding I've presented of what marriage is, uh, same-sex relationship isn't marital. But I'm trying to ask you about the equal protection argument you're making. Would it apply to all consenting adult romantic relationships? So why would you want the same-sex couple to file jointly for taxes, but not the same-sex thruple or so the opposite-sex quartet? Sure, sure, I appreciate that. And that's not the, I, I'm sorry, but that's not actually my question. My question is why should I be denied right. the right, the because, right to so file sorry, it? Then I'll just, I'll answer your question. The reason that you should not have the option of filing a joint tax return is because my you can't get married. Given but what I marriage is. I can in California, is, I can get given, married. You can be issued a marriage license in the state of California, but you can't actually get married. And, and, I'm, and I'm sorry to say it that way, but given what marriage is, and a how union is that sexually complementary. And it's not discrimination because everyone is equally eligible for entering into the marital relationship where you understand marriage as a union of sexually complementary spouses, a permanent exclusive union of man and woman, husband and wife, mother and father. If you're not interested in entering into that sort of a union, you're not being discriminated against. What you're asking us to do is to redefine marriage to include the adult relationship of your choice. And the adult relationship of your choice happens to be a same-sex couple. There are other adults who want to have marriage redefined to include the, same, the, the relationship of their choice, which may be the same-sex thruple or the opposite-sex quartet. And so what I'm asking you in response is, what principle are you appealing to when you say this is discrimination to vindicate your rights but not their rights? Because sure. it seems to me that your position ultimately leads to simply the dissolvement of the marital union. Sure. So um, there's other speakers in line, so we can always talk at lunch. Uh, but just, I just want to clarify, you, you just told, I just heard you do not have the right to get married. So if you could tell me why I don't have the right to get married, that would be my final question. Sure. Thank yeah, you. I mean, and so, I'll sit down. I mean, I, I feel like I've, right, we have five minutes left, so I'll, I'll just say this again briefly. I feel like I've already answered that. It's not that you don't have a right to get married. It's that you, you aren't seeking out marriage. Marriage is by nature a union of sexually complementary spouses, a union of man and woman, husband and wife, mother and father. And just based upon what you've said about yourself, it doesn't sound like you're interested in forming that sort of a union. It sounds like you're interested in forming a union with another man, and that's not a marriage. So that's why I don't think the law should treat the relationship that you want to form as a marriage. Uh, who, who is next?
Bam! <laughs> that was excellent. Kudos to Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation, a man who really gets it with regard to this uh, sordid gay marriage business. The sodomite questioner just couldn't understand why his disgusting acts shouldn't be rewarded with a tax break. Well, Anderson definitely let him know, and uh, <laughs> I think it was pretty clear that the uh, sodomite questioner didn't know what hit him. Now, one last thing. We'd like to explain still why, even though Anderson's response was right on the money, why nevertheless, even this would never win in court, barring a miracle. The reason is that every court will realize that if this philosophically sound argumentation is accepted, then it follows that everything else that has been legislated in the past regarding contraception, abortion, divorce, and remarriage would also have to go, because it would fall under the same principle, namely that the first and foremost end of marriage is procreation. But, again, barring a miracle, they will never forsake their sacred cows of abortion, contraception, divorce, and remarriage. Our sick society is much too selfish for that. And because of this, we must now all suffer under the burden of homoperverted marriage, which follows only naturally from the fact that they have long disconnected holy matrimony from its true purpose, that of having children. We are simply now reaping the bitter consequences of having divorced sex from children, making pleasure the governing principle. And that is it for today. If you like Tradcast, perhaps you'd like to help out with a small donation. You may do so at tradcast.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. God bless you. Cast.